Hello, I'm John Harkin, ABI's Public Affairs Officer, and welcome to another edition of ABI's Party and Interest podcast series. In the legal sense, a party and interest is someone who has standing to be heard by the court and a matter to be decided in a bankruptcy proceeding. In the case of this series, party and interest highlights extraordinary members of our community for their contributions to key bankruptcy developments, initiatives to push the practice forward, and or a passion for a cause or activity outside of the office. Our guest on today's episode is Rachel Albanese, the co-chair of DLA Piper's U.S. restructuring practice and a partner in the New York office. In addition to her more than 20 years of restructuring experience that has included a wide range of Chapter 11 cases, cross-border insolvencies, and Puerto Rico's restructuring efforts, she is also integral to a number of ABI initiatives, including ABI's Task Force on Veterans and Service Members Affairs. I'm just scratching the surface of all the ways that Rachel's efforts benefit her clients, the restructuring industry, and her community. So let me turn it over to ABI Executive Director Amy Quackenboss as she talks with Rachel to find out more about the efforts that are important to her and how she summons the energy for all of these important endeavors. Go ahead, Amy. Thanks so much, John. And Rachel, welcome. I'm so excited to have you here today. Amy, thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you here because um, these these uh, podcasts that I do are, are some of the best things that I do as the executive director of ABI because I get to really get to know people that I see often but don't really hear a lot of their stories. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're here and I have lots of great questions to ask you and I hope you'll bear with me as I ask you these questions. But um, as I do these podcasts, everyone seems to have a unique story about how they have um, become an insolvency professional or join the insolvency industry. Um, can you tell us yours? Have you always wanted to be a lawyer? Have you always wanted to be in restructuring? How did you get here? Good question. Um, the answer to both questions is no. Uh, I actually thought when I was young that I might be a nursery school teacher. Um, but when I went to college and then it came time to figure out what to do after college, I thought, well, I like to read and write, so maybe I'll be a lawyer. Um, so I went to law school and then I didn't really know what type of law I wanted to practice. Um, even after my summer, my summer internship in a law firm. Um, so I decided I wanted to work for a judge as a, you know, in a clerkship. Um, and I was so lucky to get a clerkship with, um, John Bissell, who was at the time the chief judge of the district of New Jersey. And in addition to being fabulous person, um, he had a very heavy caseload and, um, he had some bankruptcy appeals that came to him. Um, my co-clerks wanted nothing to do with bankruptcy. I thought it was interesting. I had had an excellent bankruptcy professor in law school. That was David Skeel, who many people will be familiar with from the because he's the chair of the oversight board in Puerto Rico. Um, and, and so I was intrigued by bankruptcy after law school, but really hadn't decided on it as a career path. So after handling these various bankruptcy appeals and finding the interest you know, the issue is interesting. Um, I decided, okay, well, that's a that's an area that I could see myself going into. Um, and so I did. 
that that is great and th- that that is a common story that we kind of all fall into bankruptcy but the way we get there is really is really very unique i it, it's rare at least i haven't talked to anybody yet who said i want to be a bankruptcy lawyer when i grow up right it's so right but, Thank you very much for sharing that story. And of course, you, you have um, really um, done so well uh, in the industry. Your path is impressive. You've been um, successful in making your way at large law firms, um, which is not easy. And especially um, women have traditionally faced additional challenges. Really, what's been your biggest challenge getting from uh, point A uh, to point B uh, where you are now? And how did you overcome that? Or are you still working to overcome that challenge? You're right. Women have traditionally um, had trouble making it all the way through to the upper levels in large law firms. And for me, my my path was not linear. Um, I went flex time um, when I had my kids um, and became counsel. And then ultimately, after a few years as counsel, I realized I can do this as a partner. I should be doing this as a partner. I want to spread my wings and, you know, do more, achieve more. Um, and so it took, I think getting to that point took a level of confidence that, that I had, I needed time to develop. Um, and so I would say for me, the biggest challenge was developing that confidence and continuing to build that confidence. So once I actually started believing in myself that I could do this just as well as any partner out there. Um, that gave me the strength to kind of pursue my 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 goals, um, and and so I think confidence is really the door opener um, for for everyone, especially women. And did you have folks who helped you on the way with that confidence? I mean, I, you know, were there mentors in the? We're going to talk about role models a little later, but did you have mentors on the way? And I'd be interested to know if those were women or men, uh, male yeah, mentors. I- that's a great question. I've had um, women and men um, mentors in in both firms, but I think the the most credit goes to my husband, who <laughs> has always been my cheerleader and my coach, and you know, telling me that I'm good enough. And finally, I started to believe it. Um, and so I think he he deserves a shout out for that. Um, so thanks, Russ. <laughs> Um, and, um, and then also I think at each firm I have had some really helpful teachers, mentors. Um, I guess I can, I can give some shout outs. Um, when I was at Wild Gotchell, you know, Shy Weissman was an incredible teacher. I loved working with him. Um, he was a senior associate and then a partner there. Um, as were all of the partners that I worked with at Wild, I really had a, a great experience. Um, and I still remember little snippets from Steve Karakin of the things that he would tell me as he was editing the, you know, the pleadings. Um, when I went to, um, I spent a, a couple of years at Greenberg Traurig and, um, and Jeff Rosenthal and Alan Kadish were really excellent teachers. Um, when I was at Aiken Gump, um, Lisa Beckerman, now Judge Beckerman, was a fabulous mentor. She and I worked closely together and I could not have, you know, achieved what I what I have achieved in my career without her guidance and um and then here at DLA Piper, Rick Chesley has been a steadfast supporter of mine and, and a great mentor. Um 
And uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm sure there's many people that I'm not mentioning um, who have been very instrumental in, in, you know, my career and getting to the place where I am today. But I want everybody who, um, who I've worked closely with to know that I appreciate all of the things that they've given along the way. Well, yeah, I mean, those are all a, you know, wonderful uh, people. They're, you know, they're, they're uh, great um, givers, right? I mean, and, and one thing that I've noticed about the insolvency community, uh, I mean, personally, I feel like the, the practitioners in the insolvency community, um, because we all are so close and tight and see each other in every case all the time, um, there's this camaraderie that you don't necessarily find outside of the insolvency community or not a lot of places if you were a general litigator or practitioner. Um, and I, you know, when I was practicing, um, that, that made a whole difference, you know, a, a huge difference because I could go up to somebody that I saw all the time and I felt more comfortable asking the questions, um, as opposed to going up to somebody that I barely knew. Um, so, um, I, I, I'm, it's great to hear your story and, um, and, you know, I appreciate everything that all of those people have done for you as well as, you know, done for many others as well. Uh, I'm sure. So, yeah, uh, that, the, the camaraderie in me is one of my favorite things about the restructuring industry. Um, and, and it really is distinct and, and other people that have worked on bankruptcy cases or restructuring matters who aren't part of our world have commented on that and have found it so remarkable. So I think it's something that, that we should all really treasure and continue. And I think that organizations like the ABI um, really contribute to that because we see each other at the conferences and we deal with, with each other um, in a social setting in addition to just on our cases. So we also have you to thank for that. Oh, well, thank you. And you know, it's so nice to see folks at conferences getting together and not just talking about work, talking about their families or bringing their families and really spending time together um, and becoming close friends. And I, you know, I truly appreciate that about, uh, you know, the industry and our membership. And um, I'm very grateful for that as well. Um, but I, I want to spend some time also talking about the things you do outside of the office that may be tangentially a little related to what you do in the office. But I know you're very involved in pro bono work. Uh, and I, I believe that um, you received an award from DLA Piper uh, for the pro bono work that you did um, or that you do. Um, can you tell me a little bit, because I know nothing about the pro bono work that you do, and I'd love to hear about it. Um, what, what, what's your favorite kind of pro bono work and what do you spend most of your time doing? Um, I feel very strongly that all lawyers should do pro bono and they should find projects that appeal to them on a personal level. Otherwise, they're not going to want to put in the time and the hours that it takes to work on them. So for me, I like to find projects that... Um, have a bankruptcy element, um, maybe involve kids, uh, and maybe involve veterans. Those are three aspects that are really important to me. My dad is a Vietnam veteran, um, and so I've always had a passion for uh, veterans' issues. Um, obviously, bankruptcy, self-evident. <laughs> um, and then things having to do with kids. And so most of the pro bono work dealing with kids these days seems to be, um, or that I've come across, seems to be in the immigration space. Um, a number, it's it's really upsetting when you see how many unaccompanied children show up at the border 
And it's a huge problem that we have in the U.S. It's not a new problem. I started doing unaccompanied minor cases in 2014 when I read an article in the Wall Street Journal about it and and that how the problem was growing. So um, over the past nine or 10 years, I've been representing um, children in special immigrant juvenile cases, which is a program that's pretty unique. It's set up to um, help kids get permanent residency who come from really horrible circumstances. So in order to qualify for that relief, they need to have been abused, neglected, or abandoned in their home country. Um, and they need to be, the court makes a find, the family court in in the states makes a finding that um, it would be, you know, obviously harmful to them to be returned to those circumstances. And then you take that family court finding, that order, and you send it to uh, USCIS. So it's a, it's a joint municipal federal program. And then you can establish that they're eligible for special immigrant juvenile status, and you can get them a green card. Um, and there's a very limited number of these um, green cards available for for these kinds of kids. Obviously, the problem is much bigger. Um, but the way you know in- immigration, especially um, unaccompanied minor immigration, is very controversial. But there are these programs that exist to help worthy candidates, and so. My view is I'm just helping these kids take advantage of existing programs that the U.S. has in place. And um, and I think there's a lot of need for that now. So if anyone is interested in you know, doing that, um, KIND is an excellent organization. That's who I usually work with, Kids in Need of Defense. Um, and they, you know, their, their mentors will help people with all of the required paperwork. And um, so I've been able to help book um, a number of kids that way. Um, and then, of course, I should mention that one of the things I'm proudest of is the uh, ABI uh, Task Force on Veterans and Service Members Affairs, um, which I got involved with probably about five years ago. And um, that has been just a fabulous experience working with the people who comprise the task force and specifically the smaller group of us who are on the Legislative Affairs Committee who work to pass the Haven Act in 2019. I want, um, I want to interrupt you because we call you the Tiger Team. So <laughs> <laughs> we are the Tiger Team. And that's that, as I understand it, that's the term from the military for a small, you know, like a, a tight group of people who go after an issue or go after something and, and um, work on it and get it done. Um, and so I've been lucky enough to work with um, the Tiger Team is, is uh, John Thompson. Jay Bender, uh, Christina Stanger, Holly Petraeus, and um, our honorary member is John Eames. And um, and we just, it, I mean, after we were successful in in getting the Haven Act passed um, through enormous, you know, advocacy efforts, many trips to D.C. and meeting with dozens of Congress members, staffers, you know, senators, like all kinds of really. Um, influential and important people in DC and convincing them it wasn't very hard to convince them but we because it's a really noble um undertaking that we asked them to do but after we after we got the Haven Act passed um we stayed in touch and we're extremely uh close to this day for people who don't know the Haven Act 
protects veterans and service members' disability benefits from creditors in bankruptcy. And this is a really important um, fix to the bankruptcy code because when it had been drafted, it didn't make a distinction um, for disability benefits, which are paid from a different agency than, for example, um, regular civilian disability benefits. And so um, creditors were able to get uh, to have access to to the disability benefits, which were intended to help this this person who had become disabled in in the highest service, you know, of our country. Right. Um, so so we were able to explain this to um, the people in D.C. And um, we had a bipartisan effort the whole way along. Um, which I think helped ultimately to get it passed in 2019 at a time when Congress passed, you know, less than 1% of all bills that had been put before it. So this was actually signed into law by by then President Trump. That is so cool. Um, and I, I, I just can't, I mean, the good that came out of that is, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. And I, you know, I wish we could talk to some veterans to see, you know, that that th- this has affected to ha- to see, you know, what what, and maybe they don't even know, right? Maybe this is something that that you know that just um, uh, is happening, and, and that they can take advantage of, and they didn't know that before this they couldn't. So um, there actually are some cases that were in the system before the amendment had been passed, and then after the amendment was passed were able to protect those benefits. And I think maybe Jay or Christina might know the names of the cases, but oh, great. It, we saw that it had a real world impact. That's fantastic. And I'm sure you learned so much about, the, I mean, had you had experience with the legislative process prior to getting involved with this? I actually had because my first exposure to it was um, advocating for a um, restructuring law for Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, as a territory of the United States, was not able to take advantage of Chapter 9 of the Bankruptcy Code. And at my prior firm, I worked with our policy group on behalf of a large client who was ultimately interested in making Puerto Rico a state. But they felt like in order to do that, Puerto Rico needed to get its finances in order. And, um, And so in order to do that, it needed access to restructuring. So I actually drafted you know, a version of what became PROMESA wow. um, or Title Three of PROMESA and went around with our policy um, team to, again, you know, tons of congresspeople and staffers in D.C. explaining why Puerto Rico would benefit from restructuring, why it was a good thing. I never said bankruptcy. You never want to say the B word. Um, it was always restructuring. But, um, but you know, explaining why it was a tool for business and not a bad thing. Um, and so it wasn't just us who, who you know, advocated for this. There were bondholder um, advocates at the same time. There, there was a lot of lobbying going on in Puerto Rico, it, uh, in D.C. for a bankruptcy law for Puerto Rico. So ultimately, Congress did pass PROMESA in 2016 and then the 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 Puerto Rico issuers started filing under Title III um, after that, and I when I joined my current firm, DLA Piper, I 
got to be involved in that from the um, from the issuer side. So I saw I saw it on the academic side, and then I saw it from the implementation standpoint um, in practice. And so having that familiarity with Promesa with Title Three has been really a fun um, niche to my to my practice. Um, and I currently represent uh, Luma in Puerto Rico, among other entities in Puerto Rico. Um, and Luma is uh, the entity that um, is operating PREPA, the, the Puerto Rico Electric Utility. Um, so Luma is not a debtor, but they're operating a debtor. And as a result, there's a lot of um, touch points with Title III. That's, well, it, it sounds like it's come full circle for you, that you, you, know, you helped draft the law and then you're applying the law. <laughs> yeah, it's been really fascinating to see it in practice. That that is fantastic. And what great experience to help you with the uh, Veterans Task Force and I know that, you know, that you were such an asset there um on that Tiger team and, you know, they couldn't have done it without you. So thank you very much for all all you do for everything uh outside of your practice um uh to uh devote to the community. I, I you know, that's fantastic. I do I do have one more question though before we go. Um I, and I've asked this of several of our guests. Um, who was your role model growing up? And is that the same person now? That is a tough question. Um, as I mentioned, a lot of people have contributed to who I am as a person and a lawyer. Um, I think I have to give some credit to my parents. Um, my mom, you know, was the original uh, working mother role model, and she did it so well. And I, try to aspire to do as well as she did. Um, my dad um, was, I think, always my conception of, of you know leadership and what it meant to be a leader. And he would give me his pearls of wisdom. And so um, I know they'll listen to this. So thank you, mom and dad. <laughs> um, I think Judge Rendell, who I internship, who I, who I interned for in law school, um, was really kind of an inspirational person to me. Um, she spoke on campus one day and I attended the lunch and I went up to her afterwards and I said, I would love to intern for you. And I, she said, send me your resume. And I did. And I ended up getting um, the, the, the summer job with her. And I just find her to be so smart and so accomplished and so well-spoken. Kudos to you for making making your own path there. That's that, you know, as a law student, that, I mean, that's great. That's fantastic. I I think a lot of um, jobs can be attributed to sort of, you know, reaching out to people directly and um, making that connection. So hopefully people listening will take that away, take that as a, a piece of advice. Um, and then I would say also that I was inspired by, I was lucky enough to work at Wild Gotcha when there were a number of women partners, really impressive women partners um, back in the early and mid-2000s. And um, it's rare in big law to have that. And I was so proud to be, uh, you know, learning from them and seeing that as an example. Um, and I and I knew that it was possible, you know, to do. And so um, I think, you know, I thank them for their example. Um, but I, I'm sure I'm leaving out a lot of people who have inspired me along the way. But those are some that jump out. 
those are all great role models. And I'm, I'm, I am positive that you are being, you are a role model to others. Um, just hearing your story, Rachel, it's been um, so delightful and um, so inspiring. Um, just, you know, hearing, hearing everything you've done outside of law, but also where you've come uh, within the industry and what you're doing in the industry. Um, and, and you do it with such um, passion, which is fantastic. Thanks, Naomi. Thank you for joining me, Rachel. And um, I uh, look forward to catching up with you at our next in-person event. Thank you so much, Amy. I really appreciate it. Uh, well, thank you all for listening to our Party and Interest podcast. Uh, look for additional episodes on our website at abi.org. And until the next time, take care.